The Lord was blessing those houses through Joseph. The Lord then promised that the cornerstone, through the blessing of Judah, the cornerstone of the house of Israel would come through the line of Judah. And then after that time, while Egypt enslaved Israel, after they forgot about Joseph, they enslaved Israel to weaken them. Remember, Israel had grown and had increased in strength and in number, so they were enslaved. And this enslaving was in vain, because the Lord freed them, solidified them as a nation, and put them in the promised land. And then, we're still going through the Old Testament, then over time, the Israelites desired a king. They wanted a king just like all the other nations. Israel was saying to God, but God, everybody else has a king. Why can't we have one? Remember, though, they had a king. Israel had a king. Remember, God was their king. Their request was vanity. And they got Saul. And Saul was a dude. And Saul was vanity. And he's a terrible king. And the Lord then replaces Saul, who, by the way, was from the line of Benjamin, with David from the line of, if you remember from Genesis, Judah. From the line of Judah. Okay? And he builds his house, the house of David, from which would come the Messiah and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And it still continues. The son of David, Absalom. He tries to take over and build his own house. And he tells everybody, my father's out of touch. He doesn't understand you like I do. Come and follow me and make me your king. And he made these attempts in vain. Because the Lord had chosen to continue to build his house through Solomon. And Solomon has an interesting backstory, doesn't he? Remember, the mother of Solomon is Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. Not at first the wife of David. But God chooses to build the house through Solomon. So the contrast in all of this, the contrast in all of this is what is the Lord's doing, the Lord's building, versus creation or or man's vain attempts. Lord's building versus man's vain attempts. These accounts are not examples of good people and bad people trying to do good and bad things, okay? Uh, remember, when we read the Old Testament, the, the moral of the story is not to be like Abraham or be like David or be like Daniel because those men, just like you and I, were sinners. And had they been building of their own means and devices, they would have done that in vain. But God used them. God used them. This is God's way versus man's way. We're all bad people. We're all sinners, So praise God. Praise God that he uses sinners like us. And that he uses sinners like uh, us. And everything, uh, everything, if it was all up to us, everything would be vanity, as Solomon wrote about in the book of Ecclesiastes. If it were not for God's grace, all would be vanity. Now remember also that David the king, who was a man after God's own heart, desired to build the temple. It was a good desire. He wanted to build God's house, if you will. Now, if he'd tried, it would have been in vain. Because God had said to him, the Lord had chosen his son Solomon to build that temple. And, of course, as we know, a lot of other stuff that Solomon built throughout his time and his reign. Now, 
with all of this in our minds, as I'm sure it would have been in the mind of the author of this psalm, who is Solomon. Let's now go back to Psalm 127. And you might think that was the longest introduction in the history of sermons, and it probably was. However, we need to know what Solomon's thinking about as he writes this. This is a song of ascents of Solomon. A song of ascents, that means it was sung on the way to Jerusalem, ascending up. Okay, the word ascent, they went up to Jerusalem no matter where they came from because Jerusalem was up on the mount and the temple was up on the mount. And they would sing these psalms in preparation, stirring up their hearts in preparation for worship at the temple, attributing worth to God. So it says in verse 1, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. So we can see from this, the secret to success isn't having a watchman. It isn't having a watchman. Remember, the watchman would be people who would set up around the clock all day, every day, and they would look out beyond the walls of the city, and if something bad was coming, they could watch for it, see it, and alert everyone to get ready. However, if God had decreed and designed for that army to come and wipe out the city, was that watchman going to be successful? Only in that he had communicated that there was trouble coming. But he's not going to save the day necessarily, is he? Unless the Lord's in it, that's in vain. The secret to success is not having a watchman. The secret to success in this passage says it's not getting up earlier. The secret to success is not staying up later. We know from the Old Testament, New Testament narratives, the secret to success isn't power. Goliath didn't succeed with all of his power, did he? The the secret to success isn't good looks. Absalom was a good-looking guy, and he failed. The secret to success is not ingenuity. In the days of Noah, all of these discoveries were being made. Genesis tells us all of these things that were happening and the growth of the productivity and the technology of mankind, and yet the flood still came because the evil was that great. The secret to success is not religion. The Tower of Babel uh, failed miserably. Eli's sons. Next in line is priests. Religion didn't save them. The secret to success is not superior skills. Think about the Midianites coming into to battle against Israel in time of judges. And God helped them through Gideon, but Gideon didn't do a whole lot of stuff, remember, because the Midianites destroyed themselves in their confusion. The secret to success is not wealth. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the emperor, looks at all of his stuff and says, there is no one like me. I am a god. And then God reminded him that that was not true. The secret to success is not education. Remember Paul talking to all of the philosophers in Athens at Mars Hill. He found them to be a superstitious people, a people who loved learning but had no clue who the unknown God was at all. The secret to success is not a great, a great job title. Herod, he had a great job title. It was Herod, that was the job title, by the way. That wasn't his first name. And he also had a similar feeling to Nebuchadnezzar, and he was eaten by worms. Uh, The secret to success is not experience. Paul counted all of his past experience as rubbish. 
The secret to success is not sheer effort. Think of it as intellectual sheer effort. Um, when Peter said, you are the Christ, Jesus said to him, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but the Father. Peter had not arrived because he'd figured it out. God gave him that. And the secret to success is not sheer effort as far as physical effort goes. And no one knew this better than Solomon. Nobody could have outdone all the things that Solomon accomplished, physically speaking. And he knew it was worthless. We may get sucked into the trap of thinking all of those things are going to make us thrive. All of those things are going to make us utterly successful. And yet every one of them is shown to be a failure if the Lord's not building the house. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. And think about this. It says that we eat the bread of anxious toil in this thinking. Do you want to have freedom from anxiety in your toil? Remember who the builder is. It's kind of that simple. It's not. We're complex. But we have to remember who the builder is. Remember, the Lord preserved Israel through Joseph. Joseph did not preserve Israel through the Lord. It's the other way around. The Lord can do great things and build through us, but the burden is not ours to bear. Jesus told us to take his yoke upon us because his yoke is easy and the burden is light. And if we think about it back to Joseph, he had some great opportunities for anxiety, didn't he? Joseph could have been a very anxious guy, and we wouldn't have blamed him much for it. But his focus and desire was for the Lord. He had a one-track mind in that kind of a way, getting up each day and doing what was set before him in a way that would be pleasing to the Lord. Anxiety, then, is not so much what we are going through as much as it is how we think about what we are going through. Does that make sense? It's wrapped up in the internal the internal debating and the decision-making in our minds. That's what gets our stomachs in knots and our hearts all conflicted. It's how we think about those things that we are going through. So when we empty ourselves of our pride, thinking that there's something in us that's the secret to our success and getting us out of this difficult situation, and we put God back in his rightful place, that where he is preeminent in our minds and preeminent in our lives, what looks hard ceases to just look bad. And it might even start to feel like it's easy. Not the experience, but our response to it. Get sold into slavery by my brothers, wake up, and do a good day's honest work. That's what Joseph had to acknowledge. He didn't have to fix all the problems, but he had to get up and do something the next day. Get seduced by a rich, powerful, beautiful woman? Run. That's what he did, right? That was a quick decision he made, probably because there was already something else going on in his heart that dictated to him what he should do in that situation. He could have been incredibly anxious, And he was in a difficult situation, but he just ran. Get thrown into prison unjustly? That would take us off, wouldn't it? What did he do? He obeyed the rules. He was even helpful to the authority that was there. Why? Well, what else was he going to (laughs) do? That's what he did. Uh, Get brought before Pharaoh to speak and uh, to do some problem solving in a time period where that wasn't something that was just a cool thing to do. 
you don't want to mess up that, that opportunity. You either get a lot of goods after that or you get a whole lot of death after that, probably, I would imagine. Stressful situation. And yet Joseph uses the gifts and the insight that God gave him and he tries to be a blessing to Pharaoh and to Egypt. When we think that we are supposed to use God or anything or anyone else to build our house, you see the perspective there? When we think, if I think I'm supposed to use God and utilize the tools, like it's just a toolkit that he gave me that I get to manipulate and use, to build my house, anxiety is close at hand. Anxiety is close at hand. But when we remember that God is using us to build his house, things will start to make more sense. I am a servant. I'm not the master. I am a stone, First Peter says, in the builder's house. I'm not the builder. Those things can take a weight off of us, can't they? And as Solomon learned this, uh, he shares the sweet results in the end of verse 2 where it says this, For he gives to his beloved sleep. He gives to his beloved sleep. So take that, nighttime anxieties. Uh, one cool thing about this verse. In Second Samuel 12, after Solomon's birth and after David names him Solomon, it says... And the Lord loved him. And the Lord loved him. Then it tells us that Nathaniel the prophet brings David a message, message concerning God's love for Solomon, and he's given a second name after that. And the name must have had, or the message must have had something to do with God loves him because the new name that was given to him that we don't ever hear of again really is Jedediah. Jedediah. And that name means the Lord's beloved. The Lord's beloved. And what did that verse say? For he gives to his beloved sleep. Solomon has rest. Solomon can sleep at night. He has rest from all of those potential anxieties because he has learned that God is the master builder and not himself. So this is Solomon's personal testimony in this psalm. Now, as we get to verse 3... There seems to be this transition in theme, a transition in topic, and there is, but there isn't, and we'll see why in a little while. Verse 3 says this, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. So the hunter or the warrior grabs the arrow, he puts it into his bow and shoots it and launches it off. And then it hopefully does something. Right? Hopefully it does something. Hopefully it accomplishes the mission it was sent for. Now when we shoot an arrow, there are a lot of factors that go into it going where we want it to go, right? And part of that is we might think is under our control. And part of it's just not under our control. Once that thing gets out and leaves the bow, it's out of our hands, right? And there's going to be things that come across and come along and may affect it one way or the other. But that's what it is. It's useful. It's sent off to accomplish 
a mission. And the idea here of a full quiver, okay? Some people have taken this to mean like uh, there's a certain number of kids that everybody ought to have. So they'll say, well, you know, a hunter's quiver has this many arrows and a warrior's quiver has this many arrows. What do you want to be, a hunter or a warrior? So you should have this many children. And remember, this is a this is a psalm. This is poetry. It's not a grocery list, okay? So this is not something where there's an exact number in the Bible something you have to have this many kids or else you're less spiritual or you're more spiritual or anything like that. That's not where it's going here. However, would you agree it's good to have arrows if you're going shooting? <laughs> it's good. It's a good thing to have kids, okay? A hunter does not look into his quiver and say, oh, stink, there's a bunch of arrows in there. I was hoping it would be empty. That would kind of defeat the purpose of their hunting, right? And so this isn't a, a verse that says uh, you have to have kids to have a blessing. It's not a verse that says you have to have a bunch of kids if you want to think you're spiritual. It's just a verse that says kids are good. And it's good to have kids. It's a blessing that they're there. And when you look into your quiver, you don't want it to be empty if you're going to do this task. Okay? That's what it's saying. It says here, he shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Now, it was common for the gates of the city to be a place where disputes were settled in that time. Kind of like civil cases would be decided at the gates. The elders of the town would be assembled and people could bring their problems, their disagreements, and have them decided by those elders in the watching of many witnesses there. And Solomon is saying in this passage that your children can even be a blessing to you as you get older, even if a dispute might arise. Uh, It'd be great to have your children, your adult children, members of your house, there to vouch for you, to defend you, to help you during those times. Okay, so just literally saying here that children can strengthen your cause. They can strengthen your house as they get older And as you work together as a team moving forward in your business, in your day-to-day life. So, in these verses, in these verses, children are a heritage. means that they're an inheritance from the Lord, the builder. It says in this psalm that children are a reward. They are a prize. It says that children are a blessing. Happiness. It says that children can be useful, like arrows in the hand of a hunter or a warrior. That children are and can be supportive and reinforcing. These are all the things that children are and can be. And in this passage, Solomon is saying that children are one more thing. And this is what ties the first and second half of this psalm together, where it seems like we had two different things going on on two different topics. Remember, this is poetry. When we think of poetry in English, we think of words that rhyme, that have similar sounds, that start with similar letters, and just different types of tools that we use in poetry, right, in literature. And because this was originally written in Hebrew and not in English, okay, Solomon wasn't that ahead of his times, we have these words from verse 1, to build. And the Hebrew word for that is banah. And one really interesting thing about Hebrew is that they don't use vowels. Okay, it's just consonants. So all you would see maybe if you were thinking about it in English is the B and the N. And that's it. And they just know as they learn their language that those are the vowel sounds that come with, if they were going to call it that, that would come with that word. 
So we would just write a B and the N and know that that's what that word is. Or if we were doing house, we would just have the H and the S. That's all that'd be there. Or build, we'd have the B and the L and the D. And we just know that that's it. And for kids and for people who don't speak Hebrew, they put little markings under the letters or above the letters to help us to know what the vowels should sound like. But when they learn it and when they know it, the adults, they don't have that there. Okay, so there's your Hebrew lesson for the day. To build, but now it would just be like the B and the N, if you will. Child or son. Um, they would use, if there's a feminine version and a male or masculine version, I shouldn't say male, feminine and masculine. Some of you maybe have taken Spanish or French or other Latin languages like that, um, romantic languages coming from the Latin. And you know what I'm talking about, like the feminine and the masculine types of the languages? It's like that in Hebrew, too. And so if you're talking about children or a child, you would just naturally attribute the masculine grammar to it, okay? So that word is Ben. Ben. Uh, think of it like uh, Benjamin, the name Benjamin. Ben, Yamin, son of my right hand. That's what that name means. So you have build, Bena, B-N, and you have son, Ben, B-N. So poetry, right? These words are paired together. So the Lord builds his house with what? Our children. That's how it's tied together. So children are the building of the house. Children are a heritage. They're an inheritance from the Lord. They're a reward. They're a prize. They are a blessing. They are happiness. They're useful. And they're supportive. And they're building material. For the house that the Lord is building. And if God says that children are all of these things in this psalm, then we also must understand that children are not punishment. They are never a negative consequence. Ever. Children are not a hindrance to the quality of our lives. And children are not the destruction of God's plans for our lives. Now, someone might feel like their plans are destroyed when they discover a pregnancy, but God's plans are never destroyed because the Lord builds the house. Uh, When we think of children in these ways, that they're a punishment, that they're a negative consequence, that they're a hindrance or a change of plans, when we think of children this way, we get into some crazy ideas because of a lack of appreciation, a lack of value. And we are ready to start treating children poorly and do some pretty crazy, sinful things. Let's think about this as a culture in the physical sense. I want you to keep these states in mind. Okay, Michigan, Ohio, Indiana, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Wisconsin. You got those six states? Michigan, Ohio, Indiana, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Wisconsin. Think of the population of every one of these states. Combine them all up. Okay? Think Detroit, Ann Arbor, Lansing, Grand Rapids, Kalamazoo, Mount Pleasant, 
Think of Toledo and Columbus and Cleveland and Cincinnati and Akron and Canton and Dayton. Think of Pittsburgh and Philadelphia and Harrisburg. Think of Madison, Milwaukee, Chicago, Peoria, Springfield. You following me? And everybody in between. And then take that total number and add 500,000 more. And this is the number of human beings. Actually, it's short of. The number of human beings, the lives that have been taken since Roe v. Wade in 1973. Over 60 million. And that's just the United States. That's just us. In China. In China. It's about 23 million a year. So take Michigan and Ohio. Every single living soul. Gone. Every year. Gone. We cannot fathom the damage that has been done. Remember, the Lord builds the house with children. We can't fathom the damage that's been done to to individual homes throughout our nation, throughout the world, to our nation as a whole, and to every nation as a whole where this has been happening. And all because, two layers of this, all because we have come to view children as a hindrance, as punishment, as a miscalculated misstep from our grandmaster plans for our lives. I hopefully you heard a whole lot of wrong language in that sentence. All because we have removed God from his rightful place. And I'm not talking about our culture. I'm talking about our hearts. Cultures are made up of individuals who have an inner man, an inner being. Let's talk about the church. Remember, uh, last week we learned from 1 Corinthians that this church is not my church and it's not your church. We are the church and we belong, all of us together, to Jesus Christ. We are his bride. And we are the sons and daughters of God. And Jesus Christ, remember, is the master builder. Not me and not you. He says in Matthew 16, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Uh, God does use children to build his house, the church. Both young and old. Right? Both young and old. Of course, I'm talking about the spiritual person. Spiritual children. Those who have been born from above. Those who have been born again. And this is why, this is why I said I'm talking about our hearts. Why did you change? Why are you changing? Why did I change? I grew up in the church. My ambitions and thoughts, though, were continually selfish. It's not necessarily our environment. We are all born in sin. And I could have breezed through my childhood. Some of you can identify with this. I could have breezed through my childhood and and played the church game and been appropriately religious. That can be done. You can do church for all of the wrong reasons, like we talked about even in Sunday school today, and not be a genuine follower of Jesus Christ. 
It wasn't until God graciously gave me new birth, gave me a heart of flesh, opened my eyes, and took a dead young man and brought him to life. That was when I truly repented of my pride, of my sin, and saw Jesus Christ as Lord. Not just a tool. Not just a trick. But as Lord. Until this happens, there is no desire for change. There's no power for change. For any real righteousness at all. No good motive. And remember, this comes because Christ died in our place. Let's think about this now. Was it because I figured it out? Was it because I went, aha, now I get it. Now I'm going to change my life. And from now on, God's going to only count this. Or was it that God saw me in my hopelessness and in my sin and poured out his love on me by giving me his perfect son and giving you his perfect son to die in your place on the cross, to take all of God's wrath that you deserve, that I deserve, on himself so that we could be forgiven, purchased, redeemed, and made alive in him. That, that is how God builds his house. This is God's plan for change. His plan to take a spiritually dead person who who thinks they might have it all figured out, who thinks, among many other things, that their body is actually their body when we know it's all God's, right? Correct? Who has also believed the lie that the supposed tissue that resides within their body is also their body when we know that that's not the case. Uh, God's plan for change is not science. What are some things we resolve and put our trust in to, to, to fix an issue? God's plan for change isn't science. God's plan for change isn't coercion. God's plan for change isn't mockery. God's plan for change is not terrorism. If I don't acknowledge Christ as the master builder, then I am uh, the master builder of my own life, and I, I think, in my mind, and I really won't care what science has to say. Does that make sense? Science is not something that somebody says, oh, I'm going to learn about science so that I can learn about how I ought to live. I read an article this week. We found an article at a, at a hair-cutting place. And the only time science came into the picture was after those types of life-changing decisions were already made. And then science can become, for us in our motives, simply a means by which to accomplish my desires. But then we take it back and we say, okay, science has made me think the way I think. That's not God's plan for change. And in our depraved minds, in our minds where we don't want to have anything to do with God, where we won't always say no to him, how do we think that we can just convince somebody intellectually God's plan for change isn't that. God's plan for change is Jesus Christ. So, what can we do? What should we do? Remember that God has called us to be salt and light in the culture. 
That is what we're supposed to be. And so in the ways that we can, here's some things that we can do. In the ways that we can, let's encourage our government to value life. And I don't have any desire to use this pulpit or the office of the pastor to preach politics at any time. But abortion, this is not really a political issue. I don't see it as that. I think this is the killing of innocent lives. And there's something that ought to be done about it. Uh, check out the Right to Life Michigan website at rtl.org where you can stay up to speed on current legislative and judicial happenings related to pro-life issues. Let's joyfully participate as a church in this baby bottle drive with life choices. This is our local pregnancy center. This is where we can uh, help people in our community who are uh, being confronted, if you will, with this situation in their life, with this, what they don't know, whether it's a blessing or a curse in their life, and they're bewildered. Let's do something about that. Let's get involved with that. And perhaps the Lord would be pleased to use you in that ministry on a regular basis to help save lives and to point women and anybody else who might come with them to Jesus Christ. I see this as the front lines. Where else are you going to look eye to eye with the woman who's thinking about what to do with this, whatever this is in me, and be able to help them to choose life? and in an environment where you will be thanked for pointing them first to Jesus Christ. Let's be all about that. Church, families, let's love our children. There are children here today, praise God. Let's love the fire out of them. (laughs) Let's love them. They are a heritage. They are rewards. They are blessings. They're useful and they're supportive to the cause of God's kingdom and our own houses. So let's treat them like they're gifts. My kids, your kids, your kids, all of us. Treat them as they are meant to be treated because of who God's making them to be. Now, maybe some of you could consider things like foster care or adoption. And I know this is a big ask, this is a big thing, and it's not, it's not any small thing to consider. It's, it's not something that everyone can do. It's not something that everyone should do. But if God would lay it on your heart, and it would be in keeping with the stewardship that God's called us to be and to have in our homes, maybe that's something that we could consider. That your home could consider. Uh, with foster care and adoption, I often think about the passage in Jude where it says that we win them as snatching them out of the fires. What an amazing way to show the love of God and to point people to Jesus Christ. Huge commitment. Yeah, like lifelong. Is it worth it? Yes. And finally, and most importantly, and I say that from the sense of the big picture here, all of these things can have this most importantly infused into them, okay? This is our greatest impact. Remember what God's ultimate plan for change is. Let us all, as a church, faithfully, as individuals, and fervently share the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is our greatest love that we can give to people. 
Let's faithfully and fervently share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Spiritually dead people affect others in spiritually dead kinds of ways. If we use spiritually dead people kinds of tactics, shaming, yelling, cursing, humiliating, and on and on, it will only accomplish spiritually dead kinds of results. Do you understand that? Does that make sense? Godly people, though, people who have Christ in their hearts and are sincerely following him, affect people in godly ways. Godly people influence others for godliness, pointing them to Jesus. Godly people give their reasoning with gentleness and respect. Godly people value life, all life. The life of the babe and the life of that mother. Godly people are people of God. That's what that word means. So let's be of God. Let's be his building and enjoy the work of the master builder. We're not going to use God to accomplish a means. God, though, can use us to build his house. Because unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. We can apply that to our homes. We can apply that to the community. We can apply that to our church, First Baptist Church. Let's get on his page, be on his side, understand that he is our builder, and follow hard after him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for life. In your goodness to us, you knit us together in our mother's wombs. And in your goodness to us, even though we sin against you, you gave us Jesus. You gave us life, eternal. You gave us salvation in him. And I pray, Lord, that as we grow in Christ likeness, that we would be people of God and do things in godly ways and love people. God, may it always be in our hearts, on the tip of our tongues, the life that can be had through Jesus Christ. God, may we exercise pure religion and loving the least of these. God, forgive us where we would ever look at a person before any kind of salvation, before their salvation, and and think about whether they would be a good addition to the team or not. You've called us to, to serve the least of these, whether they have a name yet or not. God, help us and, and forgive us where we think that we are not the least of these, where we think that we might be better than that. And humbly and faithfully and lovingly, compassionately, sincerely uh, pointing people to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. God, we thank you that he is the cornerstone, that he is the builder of his church, and that we have the privilege and joy of being a part of that. God, may we honor you with the lives that you've given to us to honor you with. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.